Welcome to On the Environment, the podcast from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Charles Harper, a master's student at the Yale School of the Environment and your host today. Today, we're speaking with Professor Michael Mendez, an assistant professor of environmental planning and policy at the University of California, Irvine, and most recently uh, serving as the inaugural James and Mary Pinchot Faculty Fellow in Sustainability Studies and Associate Research Scientist at the Yale School of the Environment. Dr. Mendez's new book, Climate Change from the Streets, provides an urgent and timely analysis of the contentious politics of incorporating environmental justice into global climate change policy. Dr. Mendez, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. So Dr. Mendez, in your, in your book, uh, Climate Change from the Streets, you speak about the importance of connecting public health with climate change policy. Um, that's particularly relevant now as we're going through a global pandemic, but can you tell us why you think it's so crucial to make that connection? First and foremost, the impact that are happening from climate change, if it's wildfires, heat waves, uh, drought, uh, extreme weather events, um, hazardous air quality that's being testified from heat waves as well and heat waves itself, are being first and foremost experienced by the most marginalized and the most impoverished society, particularly low-income communities of color. And, and to have equitable and, and effective climate change policy, not only should we be focusing on the mitigation and reduction of carbon uh, pollutions, uh, carbon pollution and greenhouse gases that's contributing acts that are happening to the people on the front lines of uh, this type of instability in our climate. So you also speak about how the environmental movement has engaged in quote, carbon reductionism where people focus on technical metrics-based approaches to addressing climate change. Uh, can you tell us what is problematic potentially about that approach and how we can move our work and campaigns in a different direction? Yeah, so carbon reductionism um, that I talk about and write about in my book, it's focused on this idea of very myopic, um, narrow view of uh, climate change. And the causes of climate change, of course, are greenhouse gas emissions and uh, carbon is the most abundant greenhouse gas and emission in the atmosphere. Um, but that idea of carbon reductionism is really is only focusing on carbon reductions and a very, again, a very myopic approach, but not also understanding that climate change is happening in larger society. And the causes of uh, climate change, uh, GHG emissions or carbon emission comes from fossil fuel burning. And for the most part, fossil fuel burning uh, creates these greenhouse gas emissions that mix uniformly in the global atmosphere and affects people's, does not affect people's health because it's the global pollutant. But at the same time, a fossil fuel burning, it burns these greenhouse gas emissions, but it also burns local pollution, such as NOx, SOx, a particulate matter, um, and some of the precursors of smog that stays at the neighborhood scale and affects people's health. And, and some of that carbon reductionism only again focuses on carbon reduction and essentially creates these policy silos where um, uh, climate change only deals with global pollution uh, from fossil fuel burning and uh, local pollution from fossil fuel burning is dealt with local regulations. And environmental justice groups have really argued for what I call uh, a more street uh, perspective of climate change from the streets um, where we're looking at multi-benefit policy uh, looking at reductions of not only greenhouse gas emissions, but co-pollutants of climate change. These again are local pollution that come from fossil fuels and have a stronger emphasis on public health. So 
uh, this idea is that um, climate change, and we saw this in California, became uh, California became a global leader in climate change innovation uh, for subnational governments. And it was uh, and the State Air Resources Board that uh, uh, has authority to regulate uh, around climate change and air quality issues uh, was really moving away from this fundamental mission of public health and local air pollution reduction. And was putting a lot of resources money, staff, time to this global problem, which was quite, quite important, but its approach to uh, global pollution uh, was very geographically neutral and was really just focused on that global reduction target. And environmental justice groups really argued against sort of this, that myopic reductionist policy siloed approach and again asked for multi-benefit policy because um, the pollution problems that were happening at the neighborhood scale from fossil fuel uh, combustion uh, were, was only increasing and still bearing a disproportionate amount on low-income people of color. So these environmental justice groups really advocated, protested, used uh, uh, lawsuits and oppositional tactics, and then collaborations of coalition building to rescale California away from a solely uh, a global uh, perspective of climate change to one that's really multi-scale, connected to the local, regional, and most importantly, the neighborhood scale. So cap and trade in California seems to fall under this category of carbon reductionism since it prioritizes and, and prices uh, auctions, net decreases in greenhouse gas emissions and not caring about local pollutants or um, co-pollutants, co-benefits. Um, so how have environmental justice groups in California reacted to cap and trade and have their opinions perhaps shifted about it since it was first implemented? Well, philosophically, the majority, not all, but philosophically, the majority of environmental justice groups are opposed to cap and trade and market-based systems, in particular cap and trade. And they opposed it since 2006 when uh, California passed Assembly Bill 32, AB 32, the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006. Um, and they try to uh, use lawsuits to stop uh, the implementation of the cap and trade program that ultimately failed. And um, California entered, um, had its first auction of cap and, for cap and trade credits uh, in, in November of 2012. Um, since then, that cap and trade system uh, uh, has bought it, brought in billions of dollars in terms of uh, revenue. And while, Environmental justice groups were are philosophically opposed uh, to cap and trade. Cap and trade was the law of the land. It was uh, AB 32 passed. Uh, the Air Resources Board eventually adopted cap and trade regulatory um, as the mechanism, and billions of dollars were coming in. And the the State Air Board had so much discretionary power to use that uh, revenue for anything they wanted, but they had no mandates to focus on environmental justice groups. So while philosophically these groups oppose cap and trade, um, they made some pragmatic choices and sponsored legislation to require uh, now um, of forty percent of that uh, cap and trade revenue, forty percent uh, of the billions of dollars coming in to be invested in mitigation uh, and multi-benefit projects and environmental justice communities, and we see that ex uh, that experiment of the climate change community benefits fund. Um, being uh, scaled up now to the Biden administration, 
uh, where they ha have it his plan that 40% of climate investments should be in environmental justice communities. Great, thank you. So especially in, in the clean energy field, a lot of these conversations are often highly technical, complicated, and revolve around different technologies that might help us transition off of fossil fuels. So talking about things like hydrogen, battery storage, distributed generation, smart grids, all these uh, jargony words that aren't maybe heard in everyday household conversations. So how can we adjust our own uh, discussion of climate issues, environmental issues to bring local impacts, communities, and environmental justice principles more into mainstream conversation? Well, I think first and foremost, we have to lead with equity. Uh, typically, what has happened by traditional environmentalists um, that have been promoting climate change proposals, sustainability proposals, have, have not focused on local communities of color. They're doing so more so now because they have been pressured and they have developed more long-lasting relationships. But initially, when places like California adopted AB32, it was this really utilitarianism, utilitarianism approach of focusing on the greatest good for the greatest number. So focusing on how this climate change policy would benefit the majority and not the most disadvantaged impoverished communities. So in essence, in the early years of California's climate change program, there was this sort of trickle down environmental policy that benefited the, 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 the global atmosphere, uh, statewide uh, emissions reduction um, and benefited the majority. Uh, and eventually those benefits would trickle down to the most impoverished individuals. So now, now what we see after many years of organizing, campaigning, oppositional tactics, um, coalition building, um, and having um, campaigns to have more people of color in the legislature, more people of color on the air board and other important environmental regulatory boards, um, having those environmental justice perspectives, we see California slowly uh, not only being a leader on environmental issues, but a leader now on environmental justice. Still a lot needs to be done. And there's still a lot of inequities and environmental racism happening throughout California, but we see uh, a, sh a stronger shift towards leading with equity when we're creating these very comprehensive and, um, uh, and large um, environmental climate and sustainability programs and policies. Okay, so I guess one way to bring it to the forefront of the conversation is to bring environmental justice to the forefront of policy, to make the policies explicitly about these things and then conversation about that will, will follow. Yes, and so just really looking at the benefits, who benefits from this policy, who's most impacted currently by the problem of climate change or um, some, uh, some sustainability environmental problem and trying to lead with that first and looking at who's, uh, how these communities at the front lines of these impacts are, are, are suffering and how can our policies um, center them first and foremost and not having them simply as an afterthought, as a topic that eventually we'll deal with later. Great, so in your book, Professor, you also talk about the global environmental justice implications of local climate policy. So we've talked a bit about that today, but can you tell us more about how um, and if EJ groups in the US are connecting with communities internationally? Yeah, so, so I talked about in the book how, how California environmental justice groups really started to see a need to connect to a global consciousness 
around environmental issues and climate change issues around the world and how linking up their, uh, their environmental campaigns around fossil fuel, um, fossil fuel combustions and environmental hazards uh, could be linked up to other um, issues related to indigenous rights and, and impacts that indigenous communities particularly are, are experienced around the globe. And uh, I talk about this in the book, this comes really at the forefront on when California, it has the third largest cap and trade system in the world after the European Union and China. And it, it really wants to expand its global reach. It sees California sees itself as a nation state and wants to expand its cap and trade system. And in terms of what's called forest offset projects, that's where polluters can pay anywhere as pay anyone else anywhere in the world to uh, to reduce their carbon footprint um, uh, and they could continue to pollute. So you can pay um, landowners in Mexico or Brazil to preserve their forests instead of cutting them down for logging or to extract oil and to keep them in for, uh, for at least 100 years as carbon sinks to sequester uh, carbon and they they get paid those landowners in the global south get paid those uh, um, those uh, paid something, paid a, a monetary amount to maintain those trees uh, and preserve the carbon. And uh, polluting industries also pay for that and are able to continue to pollute instead of reducing um, emissions on site or upgrading technology for they can reduce emissions. So this has created a lot of um, discontent among California environmental justice groups that want polluting industries such as the Chevron oil refinery in, in uh, Richmond, California, that Chevron refinery is the, the second, uh, is the largest oil refinery west of the Mississippi. And it, it, it creates, uh, it's the largest, single largest emitter of carbon emission in the, uh, in the entire state of California, and also one of the largest uh, emitters of local pollution. So they're one of the biggest um, buyers uh, for what we know of carbon um, off offset projects and uh, they they would like to see uh, uh, like to see this extended to the global south where they can buy um, offset uh, uh, credits that are even cheaper than the ones that they can buy in the United States so that that has really uh, unnerved um, environmental justice groups again that want pollution reduction at home and then some indigenous groups um, in Mexico and Brazil, that are afraid that these forests are going to be taken over by governments and landowners and restrict their, their access to these lands because they have to do an accounting and verification that these trees are actually sequestering carbon. And they're essentially going to be evicted by uh, from some of these forests where they can where they can essentially create a boundary of uh, where these forests are sequestering carbon in terms of uh, accounting and verification again. So in my book, I really talk about this unique um, collaboration between environmental justice groups and indigenous rights leaders in the global south to oppose the expansion of the California uh, cap and trade system to Mexico and Brazil and other places. And the, these collaborations um, started, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago when um, Native American, U.S. Native American tribes uh, and advocacy groups started attending the United Nations Conference of the Parties. And because, you know, U.S. Native American tribes are, uh, are sovereign nations, and so they wanted to be at the climate negotiations and talks and have a presence, a presence there. 
And they also started to see um, the need to have um, environmental justice groups from the United States there. So environmental justice groups uh, slowly started to attend these meetings and build sort of um, uh, collaborations or relationships with these groups. So in California, about 10 years ago, wanted to expand um, uh, to include forest offsets from the global south. Uh, they, were, they were able to uh, create an opposition campaign to do that. So how have traditional large environmental groups such as the Natural Resources Defense Council or Environmental Defense Fund, um, how have these groups historically interacted with environmental justice groups in California? And how could they become better partners of environmental justice groups moving forward? So historically, um, there, there hasn't been a, a good relationship between a, a traditional environmentalist and an environmental justice uh, movement. And, and today, in our contemporary moment, um, that has changed. Uh, there's stronger relationships. But historically, when EDF, NRDC, some of the biggest players in state and national politics uh, and legislative politics, that is, um, you could you could see it from uh, their legislative priorities about how they focused more on um, ecological issues, the oceans, um, and not how um, environmental hazards and threats or climate change impacts were affecting disproportionately low-income communities of color. And that, that was a strong um, tension, and uh, you continue to see it today, but I think it has greatly improved uh, after much hard work and pressure, and also, um, quite frankly, changing dynamics in places like California, um, where uh, the de demographics are changing and uh, voters are more uh, are increasingly being Latino, African American, and Asian, uh, Pacific uh, Islander (API), and correspondingly, legislators of color are uh, becoming a majority in the state legislature. And they are demanding environmental climate change legislation that directly um, benefits their communities, which often includes uh, environmental justice communities. So a new political calculus has also been, um, uh, been developing where um, traditional environmentalists see the writing on the wall. Um, uh, they're, they're, uh, traditional white um, legislative uh, champions are retiring and uh, many of them are re replaced by people of color that have uh, different constituencies and also uh, different priorities. So how can we, um, I'm here I'm talking about folks outside of California, such as uh, ourselves at, at Yale in New Haven and other folks around the country, how can we learn from the efforts of environmental justice groups and coalitions in California, or maybe bring any lessons learned any success stories to national and international climate change policy and make sure that policy everywhere ensures environmental justice? I think the biggest thing is um, looking at this connection between climate change, poverty, inequality, public health and jobs, where we, when you, you focus on outcomes and you focus on benefits and make uh, climate change real and less abstract, that's the most important thing you can do and you can expand your coalition and bring more people under the tent when you focus on those benefits and those outcomes. And you ensure that um, people understand um, that this climate change legislation is not only improving our, uh, our planetary um, uh, health, 
but it's also uh, improving the health of your children, the health of the elderly, and the health of all individual workers and people living in our society. So I think that's the biggest success of California's um, climate change story of uh, where it, uh, still a lot needs to be done, but it has moved the needle definitely around um, environmental justice and its linkage uh, to climate change. And while um, environmental justice groups have not always uh, won all their battles that they wanted, but they're now at the center of uh, those legislative discussions. And that is definitely uh, shifting the needle um, and, the, uh, and the benefits that are happening in California. Great, well, thank you so much, Professor Mendez. It's um, been a pleasure to talk to you. And can you tell us maybe how we can find your book? Sure, um, it's called Climate Change from the Streets. Um, Yale University Press um, uh, published it last year. And you can, you, know, you, you can find it on the Yale University Press site or also on Amazon. Great, well, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much.